book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse number 5, it says there that when the Lord gave instructions to Moses, when Moses was on the mount, and he was going to build a tabernacle, and he says, make sure you build it according to the pattern that was shown you in the mount. Don't change anything, but make sure you build it according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses was privileged to see eternal truths, eternal realities, and then somehow he had to come back to planet Earth with a revelation of what he had seen and what he had heard, and he was to try to make a copy of the things that he had seen, because it's hard for you and I with our finite minds, with our limited capacity to understand the things and the truths of God. And so what God graciously has done is he's given us patterns, parables, allegories, object lessons, pictures, so that we can go from things that we can see that we can understand in order to go from there and with the Holy Spirit's help appreciate the greater things that we can't understand without His help. So thank God for the object lessons that He gives us. And the tabernacle that Moses built in the Old Testament definitely is full of object lessons about the grace of God. So I want you to turn your attention to the Old Testament, to a book you probably don't hear preached from very often, and that is the book of Leviticus. When's the last time you read through the book of Leviticus? Has anybody read through the book of Leviticus? A few. It's an interesting book. Specifically, I want to go to chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus. And it is known as the Day of Atonement. How many like the word atonement? You can spell that in English, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, but what it really means is at one meant. That's where it should be divided. To atone, you put that word atone and you divide it into two words, at one. To make one. And that's what atonement is. Is to making one. Now in chapter 16 and verse number 16, it says, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall they do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them, listen to this, that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And verse 19 of the same chapter, it says, And he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it and hallow it, now listen carefully, from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. From the uncleanness of the children 
of Israel. This specific day, the Day of Atonement, happened on the tenth day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, and it was the most sacred day of all the days that the Jews would observe. It was an annual event to be done every year, just one day. It was the one time in which the entire nation was required to fast. No work was allowed to be done, and the entire nation was to afflict their souls. And they were to inwardly harmonize in their hearts and in their souls with the events that this Day of Atonement came to symbolize. So that there would be no mistake, it is emphasized, and I'm going to repeat, that only the high priest is allowed to officiate this particular ceremony. And in the case of his death, that responsibility would pass on to his son. It was the most serious day It was the most solemn day. It was the most sacred day. It has a higher significance than Passover. It has a higher significance than the Sabbath. This is the high day, the day of atonement. It's a serious day, but it yields a good result because five days later, after the day of atonement, five days later, they celebrated the feast of tabernacles. And if you know anything about the Old Testament feast, the Feast of Tabernacles was party time. It was wild celebration. It was uninhibited joy. So whatever this Day of Atonement did, it results in the most massive celebration of joy that was to come Later, But the purpose of this Day of Atonement, as I read in verse 16 and as I read in verse 19, the purpose of this Day of Atonement is to cleanse from the defilement, from the pollution, from the stain, from the contamination of sin. And there is a truth that is assumed in, behind the background of the whole book of Leviticus And that truth is this, is that sin defiles. Sin pollutes. Sin contaminates everything that it touches, including the holy place, including the brazen altar, including the altar of incense, including even the Holy of Holies. And the fact is that all through the year, in spite of all the burnt offerings and the Sabbath offerings, in spite of all the peace offerings and the meal offerings that happen all through the year, the fact is this. The people's sin continually brought pollution to the very house of God to the very tabernacle of God. And you know this, that holiness and uncleanness cannot mix together. If there's not an atonement, when holiness and uncleanness mix together, there is judgment. And we have a problem. 
Holiness and clean, uncleanness cannot mix. So thank God for the sacred day called the Day of Atonement. Because what's going to happen in this most sacred day is that all the defilement and the pollution and the stain and the contamination of sin is going to be removed. The accumulational effect of it all is going to be removed so God can dwell in the midst of his people. Amen. You should be excited about that. So God can dwell in the midst of his people. There are two kinds of offerings that are going to be offered on this day by the high priest. There's what the Bible calls the sin offering. What that really means, it's a purification. It's an offering that is given to purify. It is to cleanse from defilement. And then after that, there's what's called burnt offerings. And that's where the atonement is made, is where we are wiped clean, where the wrath has been propitiated, where the ransom has been paid. But the purpose of this day is to purify the tabernacle to purify the priesthood, to purify the people so God can dwell in the midst of his people. Amen. 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 So I'm going to make the assumption that everybody here, mostly everybody here, would understand the layout of the Old Testament tabernacle of Moses because it would be like a linen fence And inside the fence you have a courtyard and you would come in by the eastern gate. And if you were in the courtyard, then you'd be met with a a tent inside. And that tent on the inside had two compartments to it. There is what's called the holy place. And in that holy place you had an altar of incense. You had a table of showbread. You had a, a golden candlestick in there. And then there was the veil. Nobody, I mean nobody, could go through that veil. Nobody. Nobody. On the other side of that veil, into that other smaller room called the Holy of Holies, is the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the two golden cherubims whose wings spanned and touched each other. And that's where God said, He dwells there. But the veil is there. Nobody, nobody can go in there. Holiness and uncleanness cannot meet unless you want judgment. Atonement has to be made. That atonement is done with blood. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 will answer the question, why does it take blood for atonement? And that's because it says the life is in the blood. That's why. Because the life is in the blood. It's the carrier of life. You see, sin is not just a lapse of moral judgment 
that cannot be atoned for by a simple apology. Or even going to jail for a crime does not atone for the sin. It is blood that is required. It neutralizes, it conceals sin. The shedding of blood means a life has been sacrificed. It means substitution has been made on our behalf. Most people are probably not familiar with the ritual of the Day of Atonement, so I want to walk you through what happens that day step by step so that we can understand what Jesus, the great high priest, has done for you and for me. First of all, it was a special day, and the high priest, and remember, only the high priest can officiate this. It was a special day, and he required special preparation for this day that didn't happen any other day of the year. Any other day of the year, it would be sufficient if he would wash his hands and he would wash his feet, but not on this day. On this day, he is required for an entire bath. Not just hands, not just feet, but entire bathing of the whole body. That's unique to this day. And something else he would have to do is he would have to change his garments. You should have seen the high priest garments in the Old Testament. They were very colorful, very majestic, beautiful, dignified. His normal attire was was blue, purple, scarlet threads, onyx stones, twisted, pure gold chains, a chest piece with 12 precious stones on them, an ephod. Uh, he had an, uh, a turban on his head, an ephod, and on the bottom of it was bells and pomegranates, all of different color. That was his normal, everyday attire that he would wear, but not on this day. No, he can't wear that on this day. On this day, all that has to come off. And all he's going to wear is simple white garments. That's it. Maybe if your mind is imaginative, you're already making some connections. Maybe you're understanding how Jesus left the splendor of eternity. Maybe you're understanding that he had to come and he had to live his life on this world, in this world, as we said yesterday, and he had to live it a pure life. And not just washing of hands and feet, but his whole life had to be pure. And had to demonstrate that purity. And he laid aside the glories of heaven to assume simple humanity. Maybe your mind is already making some connections there of what Jesus, our high priest, has done. That's how he had to prepare himself, those two things. Change to the simple garments after a complete bath. Prior to the sacrifices, he is going to have to present the offerings to the Lord before they are sacrificed. He's going to bring for himself a bullock to the door of the tabernacle and he has to make an offering for sin for himself. And then what he's going to do also, he brings a bullock to offer on his own behalf, 
And then he's going to bring not one, but two goats. In order to do this one offering on behalf of the people, he requires two goats. This is interesting. Here's one sacrifice in the Old Testament that it takes two goats to do it. Why two goats? Why is this one offering requiring two goats? Well, we're going to find out in a second. But they are also are dedicated to the Lord. And the high priest is going to cast lots to make a choice with these two goats. One goat is going to be sacrificed. Another goat is going to be led out into the wilderness. Have you ever heard the term scapegoat? Have you heard the term scapegoat? One's going to give up its life. The other one will become what is called a scapegoat. That scapegoat is going to be taken out in the wilderness, purposely lost there in the wilderness, so it cannot find its way home. The significance of that we'll see shortly. And after he presents the bull on his behalf and two goats on behalf of the people, then he has to make his offering, his sin offering, his preparation offering for himself. And what he's going to do, he's going to go outside to the court and the high priest is going to offer the bullock for himself. You see, before he could offer for the people, he has to offer for himself because he himself is not clean. So how are you going to do this for the sake of other people when you yourself are not clean? And he himself has to be clean. He is a man compassed with weakness. He is a man compassed with infirmities. Do I need to remind you of the story of Aaron in the book of Exodus? How this man, Aaron, who's going to be that first high priest, that he created a golden calf. He's a man of weakness, a man of infirmity. He's a man whose own sin is a problem. So he has to make this bullock offering for himself. And then the blood has to be collected from this bull. Now, I don't know if you ever tried to collect blood from a bull or not. This is going to take a while. This is going to take a while for the blood to be drained because he's going to use that blood inside. While he's doing that, he has another task. While somebody is collecting that blood, he has another task. And for the first time in a year, the first time in a whole year, what he does is he takes a censer with live coals on it. And he takes incense. And he walks through the first part of this tent, the holy place. And then, the first time in a year that anybody's ever allowed to go in there. And you've got to go in the right way because if you do it wrong, you're dead. Because holiness and uncleanness cannot meet without judgment. If he doesn't do this right, he's dead. And he goes in and the first thing he does is he puts the incense on the live coals, creating smoke. And the holy of holies is filled with smoke. 
Why? Because no man can look on God and live. No man can look on God and live. There has to be a barrier here for this to work. It acts as a veil between himself and the presence of the Lord so he doesn't die. You see, the vision of God is impossible to human faculties. You need to have a resurrected body to see. You need a resurrected body to see. So once he's inside that veil, he immediately puts the incense on the live coals of the censer so the Holy of Holies is filled with smoke to act as a veil between him and the Lord. So while the smoke is filling that that room, he goes back out of the Holy of Holies, back through the holy place outside into that outer court where they've been collecting the blood from the bullock. Then he takes the blood in a bowl. And then he passes back through the first part, that holy place. And then now with blood into the smoke-filled room, he goes in to the holy of holies. And what he does is he will put his finger in the blood and on top of the mercy seat, he will sprinkle once the blood on top. And then he will take his fingers again and he will sprinkle seven times on the ground before the ark of the covenant. Because the place needs to be cleansed from the the defilement of his own sin. It is blood that cleanses. Now aren't you glad when God looks down at the mercy seat? You see, if you could see what's inside that mercy seat, there's a box there and it's got a few things in there. It's got the Ten Commandments in there. Do you want God looking at those through the eyes of your defilement? (laughs) It's got Aaron's rod that budded in there. Do you want God to be reminded of the rebellion against the leadership that he has endorsed? It's got a pot of manna in there. Do you want to remind God of our complaint, of his leaning and his guiding and his provision? Or do you want God to see all those reminders of our sinfulness, or do you want him to see the blood? So it's the blood that is sprinkled on it. It's the blood that's sprinkled on the ground before it. So he sees the blood rather than all the things that remind him of our guilt and our trespasses. And he goes in and the blood of the bullock is for himself because he himself is a sinful man. Well, when that is done... He will leave the Holy of Holies, pass through the holy place, back into the outer court. There are two goats. Remember the two goats? This time it's for the people. It's not for himself. One goat has already been decided that he will be sacrificed and the other one will become the scapegoat. The goat that is sacrificed, again, its blood is collected And now for the third and the last time, and it will happen again for another year, he goes through the Holy of Holies into the holy place, this time with the blood of the goat 
on behalf of the people. And he will do exactly the same as he did with the blood of the bull. He will sprinkle it once on the mercy seat, seven times on the ground. So that when the Lord looks, he sees the blood. Not the Ten Commandments that the people have broken. Not the Aaron's rod that budded, that reminds God of the people's rebellion. Not of the pot of manna that represents their murmurings and complainings about the provision of God. He sees the blood. And it covers the sin. It conceals it. It hides it from the eyes of the Lord. Blood, substitute, has been made on our behalf. He has sanctified the Holy of Holies because our presence pollutes it. On his way out this time, he has sanctified, cleansed the Holy of Holies with blood. On his way out, he's now in the holy place. And what he has to do now is cleanse it from pollution and defilement as well. Are we understanding the contamination of sin? Are we understanding the presence that sin leaves behind us? The atmosphere it creates, the pollution, how it affects everything? And so on his way out, never to go back to the Holy of Holies again. He's now into the holy place. Did I tell you that nobody else can be there? Did I say not even in the holy place anybody could be there on this day? that nobody even sees the priest go in and out through that veil, it's off limits, even to people's sight. On his way out, that golden incense altar, where he got that incense from, he has to smear blood on it as well. Because it also needs to be cleansed from the presence and the pollution of sin. No one is allowed in there, not even in the holy place. Nobody witnesses the opening of the veil into the holy of holies, and nobody is allowed to pollute anything by their presence. My goodness. Well, the holy of holies has been cleansed. The holy place has been cleansed. What about that outer court? It also needs to be cleansed. And so he takes the blood of the bull, and he takes the blood of the goat, and on that brazen altar where the sacrifices were made, smears blood on the horns of that altar as well. So it, it also is cleansed from the pollution and defilement of our sin. And through this process, atonement has been made, and the blood has cleansed the Holy of Holies, has cleansed the holy place, and has cleansed the outer court. Then there's that live goat there. Remember we left one of them alive? There's that living goat that is there. He's going to take that goat. The Bible says he will lay his hands on that goat. But if you could read this in the Hebrew language, it's more than lay hands. It's a strong word. He presses his hands onto that goat. This is a firm, I'm getting this thing. 
firm grabbing of this goat. And as he grabs this goat, lays his hands with pressure and force upon this goat, he confesses the sins of all the people. And what happens is through this laying on of hands and through this confession, there is, as it were, a transfer of my transgressions onto this goat. And then what has to happen, this goat, is assigned to a specific man trained for the job. And his job is to take the goat out of the camp, out into the wilderness, lead it astray. In history, they used to throw it over a cliff to kill it so it could never come back. And what this is, is not only have your sins been atoned for with blood, but the scapegoat reveals that your sins have also been removed. 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 Taken away and lost in the wilderness so that your consciousness of your sins can't find its way back to you. Oh, come on now. A lot of people know they're forgiven, but they still live with shame. A lot of people know, yes, and they, I, I know I've asked the Lord into my life, and yes, I know this, and you're still living with guilt, and you're still living with shame. Not only did He die for you, but I want you to know He bore them away. They are gone. They have been removed. Not just forgiven, removed. Come on now. Not just forgiven, but removed. This is good news. Thank God I'm forgiven, but thank God even more that's been removed from me. He carried my sorrows, bore them away, bore them on His own body, the New Testament says. Jesus, the scapegoat. That's why it takes two goats for this one offering. One is to signify His death and the shedding of blood, but the picture's not complete without the scapegoat. It means the removal of them out of your life. So it takes two goats for the one offering to symbolize two different aspects of the one offering. Your sins are utterly lost. (laughs) Let me say that again until you get excited. Your sins are utterly lost. You're just not forgiven. Your sins are utterly lost. They're out there in the wilderness somewhere, starving to death. Are we catching the significance of that? This is more than forgiveness. Your sins are lost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, now that that part of the day atonement is over, what the priest will do is he goes back into the holy place and he can't go into the holy of holies because the veil is still there. But in the holy place, what he does is he changes his garments and he goes back into his usual 
garments that the high priest would always wear. And then he goes back. Now he's in his usual garments. And he goes back outside to the outer court where there's going to now be rams will be offered. He will offer a ram for himself and he will also offer a ram for the people. These are your burnt offerings that he's going to do now. And what he's going to do is act out the reality of the atonement, act out the reality of this word called propitiation, making ransom for the people. And then after that, those original offerings, the bull and the goat, the carcasses of the bull and the carcasses of the goat is going to be burnt upon that altar. And the remains of the other offerings, the rams, will be taken outside the camp where they will be burned outside the camp. And the person who takes those rams, carcasses outside to be burnt, before he can come back in, he has to have a bath. And that man who led your scapegoat into the wilderness, before he's allowed back in the camp, he also has to have a bath. Do we understand? You get in the proximity of sin, it makes you dirty. Makes you dirty. Thank God for Jesus. Now that's what happens on the Day of Atonement. The most sacred holy day. And only the high priest was in there and the other priests that would normally be in the holy place, they're not even there to witness any of this. They're not allowed to see any of this happen. So he's in there all by himself. And the Jews, growing up in the Old Testament, live with this ritual played out every year. Every year they saw this. But you know what? Over time they began to make a mistake. And they assumed that what they saw in the tabernacle of Moses was the real thing. They had forgotten that it was just a parable. They had forgotten it was just an object lesson. And then people began to put their faith in the object lesson, faith in the traditions, rather than the reality. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because it's so easy for any church or any denomination to start in a reality but end up in a tradition and your confidence is in your tradition and forgetting that the tradition is only a parable of the reality. And they had forgotten that in the Old Testament. And they were just trusting now in these sacrifices. Tendency to put your heart there instead of the reality. The writer of Hebrews wants you to see the reality. Because every parable has shortcomings. What I just explained to you, it gives us an object lesson of how the blood covers our sin. It gives you an object lesson of cleansing from defilement. It gives you an understanding and an object lesson that you're more than forgiven, your sins are lost. I'd like to run around the building and shout amen at that one. Your sins are lost. They're gone. They're gone. 
given, set free from those things. And you, we get these wonderful and beautiful pictures. That, But you know what? There's also a lot of shortcomings with every parable. And let me share with you ten, quick, I'm going to do this, ten shortcomings of what I just showed you. Ten things that don't make sense. The first thing is this. People who trust in the tradition, because that's how it's always been done, who trust in shadows and patterns, don't experience the reality. I want to remind you that the very first generation that witnessed, I want to remind you, the very first generation that witnessed the Day of Atonement, that witnessed the offerings, that saw the tabernacle of Moses be built, that very generation perished in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb ever got to see the reality. An entire generation of people perished in the wilderness. A second thing we need to notice is that this tabernacle, as wonderful as it was, was made by man. It's of this world. It's of this created order. Hebrews 9.1 calls it a worldly thing, an earthly thing. It was made by man. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Not made by man. But I'm looking for something that is built by God. And because this was made by man, there is no way that it can deliver spiritual reality. I need it to be made by God. There's a second shortcoming. The third problem is after the Day of Atonement was all over, the veil is still there. We have to do this again next year. The veil is still there. Access to the presence of God is still off limits. That's where this picture breaks down. Another thing, a problem. The Ark of the Covenant's in that Holy of Holies, the other side of the veil. All the priests throughout the whole year as they tended the golden candlestick, as they tended the altar of showbread, as they attended the altar of incense, only got so far. And never, ever did a priest ever get into the presence of God. Never. Not even once. Never even saw it. Never got in. Only the high priest could go in there once a year and he had to make sure it was full of smoke before he did that. Mm. Another problem is they have to do this every year. Repetitious. What do I mean by that? It means ineffective, futile, and powerless. It had no ability to do what it represented. It could only give an object lesson but it didn't have the power to actually do it. Because if it would actually have done it, the veil would be open. But it was, they were powerless to do it. You see, the other thing is this. As wonderful as the object lesson is, 
It could not cleanse the heart. And it could not cleanse the conscience. As a matter of fact, it reminded you every day that you're a sinner. <laughs> Instead of being teaching you about how you are made righteous, it just confronted you with the fact every day how sinful and polluted you are. Not a good memory to have that every day. The other thing is the Old Testament laws here could only relate to outer things, about meat, about drinks, about the washings. They were fleshly commandments. They were powerless to change the heart because the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat cannot deliver your heart. Cannot deliver your conscience. Now listen to this. The high priest who makes the a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he himself is sinful. He has to offer for himself before he can offer for the people. He himself needs cleansing. You need a better representative than that. He himself is sinful. And you know what? The high priest could not sustain this work in keeping you pure before God for a simple reason. He died. <laughs> Somebody else had to take the job. This high priest who's supposed to represent you before God can't sustain it because you're, he, he's going to be dead in a short time. Somebody else will have to do it. I need somebody who won't die. I need somebody who won't die. And you know what? He would have to stand continuously. He never got to sit, as we said yesterday, because his work was, his work was never finished. He could never complete the job. And so while this picture is wonderful for us and it gives us object lessons, it also has many shortcomings. And we need not the object lesson, we need the reality. May I introduce to you a man named Jesus. May I introduce to you the reality. There was a man. He's God. He laid aside his normal vestments of glory to put on humanity, to be made like in our image. He put on white garments. Because he lived a completely sinless life. He is not only the high priest, the sacrificer, but he is the sacrifice. Because you have to understand the life is in the blood. And when his blood was shed, it was the life of God himself. Not the blood of bulls or goats. But it was God sharing his own life for you and for me. And he atoned for my sin and your sin, not in an earthly replica, but in the reality of heaven itself. Come on. In the reality of heaven itself. 
and different than the replica, when he came out, the veil stayed open. Because his blood actually cleanses the heart. His blood actually cleanses the conscience so your sins are really lost. And because He has so done it and He's removed the stain of sin from our heart and the stain of sin is off our conscience, the veil is now open because we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus And your presence does not pollute the house. Why? Because you've been atoned. Oh, this is wonderful. The veil is open. Oh, you remember when Jesus died on the cross, they had a shock there in the temple. Because from the top to the bottom, it was ripped. It wasn't ripped from the bottom to the top because it was no man that did this. It started at the top of God's side and God ripped it open. Never to shut off access to the presence of God anymore. This is wonderful because nobody in the replica could even see what was going on. Nobody was allowed, not even the priest, only the high priest None of the other priests, none of the Levites, none of the common people, nobody ever saw it. But now that the veil is gone and the sins have been carried away and were atoned for, the veil is open. Not only the high priest gets to go in, but you are a kingdom of priests. And we all get to go in to the presence of the Lord. And we don't have to offer sacrifices for our sins, but we now offer sacrifices of joy, sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of gratitude that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. You're welcome. You're welcome. You are welcome, 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 welcome. Hallelujah. Oh, this man Jesus I'm talking about, He didn't have to bring a bull for himself. There was no sin in him that needed to be atoned for. So he didn't have to do anything to get his own sins in order. There's no sacrifice for his sins. Only the sacrifice for the people. Oh, listen to this. He shed his blood on the cross. Remember, it takes two goats to get this picture. He shed his blood. But he did more than shed his blood to pay for your sins. He also is the other goat. He is the scapegoat. And he took your sins away. He carried our sorrows. He bore our burdens. They are gone. Amen. And now these these priests, and the replica in the picture and the parable here, well... I couldn't trust them to do their job because, you know, before I ever get perfected, he's going to die on me. I got somebody who's never going to die on me. The power of an endless life. He ever lives to make 
intercession for you and for me. And he's not going to die on the job. He's alive. And he is risen from the dead. Oh, these priests in the replica, they never got to sit down. You know, because their work was never finished. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never cleanse somebody's conscience. Nobody felt the burden of sin lift off them, ever. But when Jesus shed his blood, the burden is gone. The sins are lost. The veil has been opened. The access is free. I am cleansed. And when Jesus, when he finished his job, he sat down. Never to repeat the Day of Atonement ever again. Sat down because he could cry from the cross. It is Amen. It is finished. What a picture. What a picture. So what was Jesus doing over this Easter weekend? That original Easter weekend, though they didn't call it Easter back then, what was he doing at that Passover time? He was a high priest, sinless, making atonement, shedding his blood, removing your sins from you, cleansing your heart, cleansing your conscience, opening the veil, and now he sets down, and this perfect man is now the exalted son on high. He's my representative. He's your representative. And you know, you know, you and I have any problems? He says, hey, open the veil. Come on in. Need some grace? Come on in. You need some mercy? Come on in. You have a time of need? Come on in. We have boldness by the blood of Jesus to come in because the veil's open. It's rent. The veil's gone. Come on in. And while we go through the pilgrimage in this life, you and I have 24-7 continuous access to what the Old Testament saint was never allowed to see. I'm glad I live now and not then. I live in the reality. I live in the reality. And I can go there and find power and strength and mercy and grace to help in time of need. He connects the power of God with my weakness there. Oh, amen. Amen. He connects the power of God with my weakness there. So that at the end of the story, when he comes back, when Jesus appears the second time without sin unto salvation, I'll be there. You'll be there. When this body puts on incorruption and immortality, I'll be there.
going to finish the story. But until we get to the end of the story, saints, the veil is open. Come. And so the writer of Hebrews is giving this constant reminder to the people. He's giving this constant invitation. Let's come in boldly. Let's come in boldly. You see, Sunday morning is past. He's resurrected. We're living on the ascended side. We're on the other side of the story now. The veil is open. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Lift our hands and just thank Him. Lift our hands and thank Him. Just bless this one that has done this for you. Come into His presence boldly. Come into His presence boldly. The veil is open. You can find mercy and grace to help in time. With confidence by the blood of Jesus. Come in. Come in. Come into His presence. Hallelujah. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's praise the one who not only forgave your sins, but carried them and got them lost for you. He's worthy to be praised. Come, let's give Him thanks today. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. 